Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, in a special episode of The Foreign Desk, the team spoke to the descendants of major political figures to find out what it's really like to be the child of a head of state. It was terrible. I have to say I was very privileged because he did speak to me about it. As you know, the situation in Southern Africa has intensified the level of stress and, of course, danger had increased so much that he thought best to warn that something might happen. Plus, travel trends with the global editorial director for Condé Nast Traveler. The pandemic really, really took a toll on people in that sense where they absolutely realized, I think, the value of travel in their lives. And so I think now they're really trying to make up for lost time. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In a special episode of The Foreign Desk, the team indeed spoke to the descendants of major political figures to find out what it's really like to be the child of a head of state. Earlier, Andrew Muller sat down with Josina Machal, the daughter of Samora Machal, the former president of Mozambique, and the former first lady of both Mozambique and South Africa, Graça Machal, which makes Josina also the stepdaughter of former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. Andrew began by asking Josina whether she realized as a child that her father had an unusual job. <laughs> yes, I think my father liked a lot of physical activity. And so he ensured that all of us would go to dance classes. I went to dance classes, swimming, school, you know, things like that. There were different sports that we had to play. And it was at the swimming school that I realized that something was a bit different about me. I probably was around three to four years old. And so I go to my dad and I say, you know what? I'm the daughter of the president. And my father looked at me and he said, what? And I said, yeah, I'm the daughter of the president. And he sat me down and he said, nah, Josina, you, he called me Joe. No, Joe, you are my daughter. Okay. The president is for the people, but here you are my daughter. And actually I was quite cheeky. I looked at him and I said, oh, okay. So what am I supposed to tell the people when they say I'm the president's daughter? And he was just a bit dumbfounded and not knowing. But it was because of, of course, walking around with security. There was a driver and there was a security, aside from a lady that was just helping me, you know, just taking care of me because my mom was the minister of education at the time. So she had her own duties. Of course, on weekends, my dad enjoyed walking around from one side of Maputo to the other, from the beach side, from the coast. And of course, there would be lots of security and people would want to come and greet. And, you know, for a three, four-year-old child, it was a bit like bubbly. Oh, people really like that. And well, then I think at around five, my bubble was burst. Well, indeed so, because I did want to ask whether around or outside the childhood that your parents were trying to create for you, that there was a sense of danger and of jeopardy, because obviously this is a very tumultuous time in Mozambique's history. Absolutely. So at a certain point, they had to sit me down and explain, of course, what the dangers of his work were all about. I had to start understanding 
politics, right? It was very good to have, you know, all these uncles and grandfathers, as I call them, you know, to President Nyerere, President Kaunda, Oliver Tambo from South Africa. So they would come home and we would socialize as uncle, auntie, grandpa, granduncle. But it was necessary to understand exactly why they were there, what kind of work they were doing, what kind. My dad was very thorough to explain our process of independence from the colonial powers. And that's when I understood that my dad's life in particular, but the lives of Mozambican people were always at risk because of the solidarity, the belief that we needed to all be independent in Southern Africa. It's a question that always intrigues me about political married couples, as of course your parents were, your mother, as you mentioned, being a senior politician in her own right and a formidable figure in Frelimo in her own right. Did they ever argue about politics between themselves? Yes, they did. But they had a rule that there was only a certain level of depth in which they would go into in front of the children. And then I was particularly cheeky and I would listen. I would pretend I was not in the room. And then two days later, I would repeat what was there. So my parents adopted actually a policy of talking in our traditional languages whenever it was something that I was not supposed to listen to. But in general, something that also helped with their marriage was that my father actually clearly demarcated spaces in which they said, you know what, we need to keep this as husband and wife, and then we can have conversations of minister of education and president, or even member of parliament or the central committee. Because if they didn't, then they would end up being discussing all these things and actually miss out on the marriage life. And I think that was quite good. I got to experience my parents as parents, mother and dad. I don't want to ask you what sense you were able to make as a very young girl of your father's death in 1986, because I'm not sure anybody can explain what it is to lose a parent at that age adequately. But I did want to ask what, if any, sense you were able to make of the ceremonies and the observances attending his death, because obviously his death is a global news event. The funeral is a massive, massive affair. How comprehensible is that to, I, I think you would have been 10 years old at the time? Absolutely. It was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. You know, it felt like a bomb had exploded inside the house because my mom was literally in pieces and so were my other brothers and sisters. I was 10 years old trying to understand what was going on. Look, the first thing was immediately when it was confirmed, we were moved away from the presidential home and we went to a second residence that they had there. But the moment we got there, you know, my mom was screaming all over the place and crying. She managed to get some kind of space to tell us what happened. But from then onwards, it was people in and out, ministers, international people coming in and out. And, you know, we were briefed as the kids as to what will happen the following day and so on and so forth. But I have to say it was really overwhelming because it hurt so deep into the hearts of Mozambicans, it really felt like everybody had lost their father, right? And so in that sense, we had so much solidarity that it helped, it minimalized. Of course, I had to do my own journey growing into teenager and realizing that, look, yes, I don't have a father and my father was a president. And for example, there is another president. So there are certain privileges that somehow felt natural that are not yours anymore. And that required a bit of an adjustment, but 
it was terrible. I have to say I was very privileged because three months, around three months before my father was assassinated, he did speak to me about it. As you know, the situation in Southern Africa, and particularly between Mozambique and South Africa, has intensified the level of stress and political heaviness. And of course, danger had increased so much that he thought best to warn that something might happen. And what he said was, there might come a day when you wake up and dad is no more. And now a highlight from our show, The Globalist. We spoke with Talita de Souza Dias on the significance and dynamics of the first war crimes trial of a Russian soldier in Ukraine. The first accused person being tried in Russia, Hazim Shishimanin, he's only 21 years old and he's being accused of gunning down an unarmed civilian. So basically the victim was a 60-year-old man just cycling his bike, uh, and he was shot uh, and who was a military commander, not a very senior, but low-ranking uh, military commander, who was ordered to shut down, to shoot down the civilian. Uh, and this was uh, four days just uh, after the invasion, so quite early on, and this man had been identified by the Ukrainian uh, army and brought to uh, be prosecuted uh, in Ukraine. And he, uh, the significant uh, fact about this trial is that it's only just started and the, the accused already pleaded guilty of the two crimes uh, of which he had been accused of. So he did guilty of war crimes, of killing a civilian and premeditated murder. So that's a little bit of an overview of the trial. Does Ukraine have the capacity to try the hundreds, if not thousands, of other war crimes that may yet come to light? Yeah. So that's a very good question. So Irina Venediktova, who is the prosecutor general of Ukraine, says that, as you've mentioned earlier, there are about 10,000, over 10,000 alleged war crimes with uh, over 600 suspects have been, having been identified by the office. And there are now two other ongoing cases about war crimes specifically. Uh, and uh, I think that what will happen is that uh, Ukraine will probably be overburdened with the amount of cases. So I don't see how uh, these many cases, the, the, the number is very high. I don't see how uh, the office alone will be able to prosecute these many crises. But that's where the International Criminal Court and other prosecutions in other states come in to like share the burden uh, between them in terms of prosecuting all these crimes. And the, the uh, Ukrainian prosecutors have been quite cooperative and quite keen on having the International Criminal Court and other states help them in terms of uh, investigations and prosecutions. So tell us more then about the team from the ICC. What will be their role? How, they, how will they go about doing it? So the team uh, that, that has been sent by the ICC, this is the third time that they visit Ukraine. And the, the delegation this time is made up of about 42 members. And uh, they also have some Dutch uh, legal experts uh, coming with them. Uh, so this is a delegation of, um, of lawyers that have been doing uh, some capacity building work with uh, Ukraine's um, uh, lawyers as well, Ukraine's prosecutors. And there are also some fr French um, experts that are there for crime scene investigation and forensics. So this is basically the delegation. It's a mixed delegation, which is cooperating with Dutch officials and French officials. And their mission there is obviously 
obviously to preserve evidence and they're doing this in a quite careful way along with the Ukrainian authorities. So they're gathering all evidence that they can from forensic evidence to testimonial evidence to try and build strong cases that can be heard before the ICC. So the ICC needs not only strong forensic evidence, which is the case in uh, law systems like Ukraine, but it also needs documentary evidence, which I believe the prosecutor is also seeking in Ukraine. But they also need uh, witness testimony. And I think this is going to be the challenge for, for, for the International Criminal Court to try and find the right witnesses that can convince the judges that these crimes have been committed. So they have not only to identify uh, these systematic crimes, but they have to identify the right victims to bring before the court to testify. So this is the purpose of the mission. Um, the ICC has jurisdiction to try war crimes. They have jurisdiction to try genocide, of course, which has been alleged to have taken place in Ukraine as well, and crimes against humanity. And crimes against humanity is really important. Um, sorry. I, I just wonder there if you could just differentiate between crimes against humanity and yes. war crimes. So the two crimes, they overlap in the sense that they cover uh, some of the same facts. Uh, for example, attacks against civilians uh, can both be a war crime and a crime against humanity. But the difference between the two is that war crimes, they are specifically about crimes committed during conflict. Uh, and they are crimes committed against what we call protected persons. So civilians, prisoners of war. Uh, and the wounded. So this is basically what war crimes mm. are. Uh, and there are some crimes that involve means and methods of warfare. So, for example, using prohibited weapons like blinding lasers or incendiary weapons. These are war crimes as well. Whereas crimes against humanity are crimes that can occur in wartime and in peacetime. And they have to be uh, they have to target civilians. So that's a typical feature of war crimes. And they occur against the background of a systematic or widespread attack against civilians. Mm. So war crimes are easier to prove in the context of Ukraine because there is an ongoing armed conflict. And that is already established. Uh, whereas crimes against humanity, they need uh, one needs to prove this element of a systematic attack, a policy of persecution, for example, or of systematic violence against civilians. So this is the additional element, and that will require some, as I said, documentary evidence about, for example, Russia's plan to attack civilians. That's the main difference. You are listening to the curator Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And the first commercial flight in six years took off from Yemen's rebel-held capital yesterday. The Yemen Airways flight, with 151 passengers on board, was bound for Jordan's capital of Amman. The flight is part of a truce agreement struck last month between the internationally recognized government and the Houthi rebels. So could he open Yemen back up the world? Let's hear from Iona Craig, a journalist who specializes in the Arabian Peninsula. There was a negotiated ceasefire that began at the beginning of April, which was the first negotiated ceasefire in Yemen since 2016, around the, the same time as the last flights happened from Sana'a. And that is due to last until the beginning of June, so for two months. And yes, part of it was the reopening of Sana'a Airport. Um, but that had, you know, stalled, failed. It was supposed to happen on April 24th didn't happen. And so, yes, everybody was really holding their breath until the last minute, it would seem, yesterday when the flight was delayed. There was a lot of nervousness that it may, might not happen, but it, it did eventually go ahead. 
what had led to the delay and, and explain to us, Weena, why these flights are going to, this flight was going to this particular destination? Because there are, there are certain limits, aren't there, imposed as to where Yemen airport can, can send its aeroplanes to? Yes, absolutely. Um, Saudi Arabia still controls the airspace over Yemen and has done since March 2015 when it launched its bombing campaign. And that means every single plane that goes in, in and out of the country, civilian flights, UN humanitarian flights, has to have permission from Saudi Arabia, from Riyadh. And Riyadh has the last, has oversight on every single manifest, so the name of every single passenger that is on those planes and has the last say on who is and isn't allowed to fly and when planes can land and take off. So Yemen Air is really the only um, regular airline that's going in and out of Yemen as a result of that. And there are only flights that the, the flights only go from Yemen to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia or to Amman in Jordan or Cairo in Egypt. And then there are um, a few less um, regular flights to Mumbai as well. But those are the only direct flights in and out of the country. And the issue over the delays has really been, you know, real technical issues. So about passports that have been issued to Yemenis in the north who have been issued by the Houthi authorities that Saudi Arabia and the Yemeni government wouldn't recognise as being official documents. Um, that became the stumbling block last time. Uh, and now the Yemeni government have said that they and Saudi Arabia, that they would recognise those documents and those passengers would be issued with new passports in Jordan free of charge on, on, on when they arrive. So these were some of the obstacles. But yes, Emma, as much as I love talking to you in the mornings, this isn't the first time we've spoken about the opening or about to be opening of Sana Airport. So um, I do hope this can can be the last time, really, and that, that the schedule stays on track. Yemen Air has got flight scheduled again tomorrow from Sana'a and that the airport does stay open that, and that it just doesn't end up being a sort of one-off or just for a short period of time because it's such a vital lifeline for Yemenis, really. Indeed, just explain to us a little bit about the importance of this, of this lifeline that you describe. I mean, because the closure of the airport was devastating for the economy in a country that, let's face it, was in the middle of war. Um, but what does this reopening hopefully symbolise? Well, really, for civilians, it's a humanitarian corridor. This is uh, a route that Yemenis, even before the war, would regularly use to get um, medical care outside of the country that they couldn't get inside the country. And that was before the devastation of um, Yemen's healthcare system as a result of the conflict inside the country. So those uh, on the flights outside of Yemen, uh, going out of Sana'a at the moment now, are being the passengers are being prioritised of those who are seeking help healthcare because otherwise it's at least 14 hours by road for um, Yemeni civilians to get from Sana'a which is and, and northern Yemen which is the most densely populated part of the country to get all the way across the country through checkpoints um, to Aden to, or to, to the east and soon the other airport that's open in order to be able to get out of the country and obviously for a lot of people who whose health isn't in the best of state doing those kind of journeys can be incredibly difficult um, if not dangerous and so this means a lot of people now who uh, for, for things like cancer treatment um, and, and crucial operations are going to be able to get out of the country and get that medical care that, that a lot of them have been trying to get for, for months, if not years now, um, from, from northern Yemen. And the wider context of peace here, we've got the Norwegian Refugee Council saying the takeoff of this first flight is a stepping stone towards a lasting peace for the country. How, how correct is that assumption? Um, I think it's part of a package, really. So um, 
it, it was a confidence building measure really with the, within the ceasefire that began at the beginning of April and is due to sort of run out in, in just over a couple of weeks. So prisoner swaps were also part of that, which have happened. Um, the the kind of lifting of restrictions on Hodeida port on the West Coast, um, which have happened as well. What haven't happened and people are still wanting to happen before the sort of to, uh, the, the deadline is reached in June of the end of this ceasefire is for roads to be reopened around the city of Tyres, which has been under partial siege for for six, six seven years now by the Houthis. That hasn't happened yet. So there are still other measures that need to take place that were part of this deal before we can even then really talk about a, a peace process or a political process being in place that can progress. We're, we're not at that stage. But yes, it, it is a stepping stone in the right direction direction and it is a positive step for sure but um but yeah i think we're we're still some way off calling this you know even the beginning of the end of the conflict but um it's a process and and this is part of it and of course listeners you know i am monaco's eurovision correspondent and i've returned from turin here is my little debrief of what i thought about the show this year Almost before we talk about this year's iteration, Faye, I guess inevitably attention turns to the 23 edition. Will you be in Kiev next year, Fernando? Listen, I might be. And that's the question everyone is asking, Tom, because even President Zelensky, he said that he plans to, you know, host Eurovision in Mariupol one day, he said. So maybe even he's kind of realistic. Can we host such a big event? You know what? There might still be a chance, Tom. But the thing is, by the end of the summer, we, we need to know which city it is because Eurovision is a massive event. They have to have an arena and they need to use the arena for two weeks for rehearsals. So it's it, lots of planning happening. So I don't know. That's, that's the, the realistic answer. But if you ask me which other countries could host, I think there are two countries that are very strong on that one. Uh, the UK, um, you know, very close connections now with Ukraine, you know, with Zelensky and Boris Johnson. And the UK has the money as well to host uh, the event. It's one of the big five countries. But a lot of people are talking about Poland. Because, of course, they're, uh, you know, a neighboring country. They've welcomed more than 3 million uh, Ukrainian immigrants, uh, you know. So, so they kind of have also a cachet to say, listen, we can host. We're very close to Ukraine. We're similar culturally as well. So it would be quite an interesting one. But other countries also said, Turin said he can host again. I don't think it's going to happen, <laughs> but, you know. You never know. And I suppose there is a just a sort of a... a, a coldly financial question which is even in 12 months time should Ukraine be spending the not inconsiderable amount of money that goes into hosting an event it would surely be better for other countries to maybe club together the UK for example to host to offer to pay for it because Ukraine frankly we hope will be spending the money at that point on rebuilding its nation right absolutely but the thing is about the money there's something about the morale for Ukrainians if the event is hosted there and I wonder if other countries can pitch in as well but it's so hard to say when the war is still ongoing so you know it, it, there's a question mark there um, Faye, let's talk, obviously, then, about the winners. We'll talk about second and third place, which also may inform that argument about hosting or may p- provide a, a, another another arm of argument. 
not, not only did the winning song from Ukraine, I think, get pretty much universal acclaim. We know the public vote was massively weighted in favour. Um, but there's also been some, well, more politics in terms of the video that has become, uh, that, that I think they've published after their success. Is this right? After the success. And, you know, kudos to them to do that because I think they didn't put it before because they say Eurovision, is, it can't be too political. And the video for Stefania that was released straight after they won, you know, it's a very bleak video, actually. It was filmed in the bombed Ukrainian cities, you know, in, on the ongoing uh, Russian invasion. It shows mothers in military wear rescuing their children. It's very sad, you know, quite emotional. And they and at the end, they say, stand for Ukraine. I was very surprised, actually, because, you know, it does kind of, uh, you know, you do feel emotional after that song. Because the Stefania, the song itself, was written before the war. And it was about mothers. He wrote for his mother, basically. So it's kind of a tribute to mothers. But after the war started, it got new meanings. Mm. So it's also about the motherlands, the mothers that are fighting for the children. So in, in that sense, it's quite beautiful. And of course, I'm glad they waited. They said, you know what, we won. But this is the video we want to show our message here as well. I think one thing that was nice about Eurovision this year is despite the... The, 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 that weight of the political reality everywhere and obviously the meaning, that deeper meaning as you so elegantly describe it there, Faye, of Ukraine's success, it, it didn't feel too ostensibly explicitly political but nevertheless, as always, there have been some other suggestions, controversies and I gather the voting process... I mean, Look, Ukraine won pretty, pretty handsomely oh, yes. and pretty handily. Yes. But nevertheless, there, there were some issues around votes from certain markets. Is that just a distraction? It's, it's, it is a little distraction. To be honest, every year there's some sort of jury irregularities. But this year, apparently six countries, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Montenegro, Poland, Romania and San Marino, apparently there's been some problems with the jury counting. I wonder if they said, you know, I vote for you, you vote for me kind of way. But, you know, and it's funny, Tom, there, for those who are watching live on, on Saturday, there's been technical glitches, right? Mm. And I just realized that actually the three of the countries that had the glitches were Azerbaijan, Georgia and Romania. I wonder if that, that's something to do with it as well. It could be, Fernando. Um, I'm going to play a couple of clips, I think, just as well for the second and third uh, finishers, if you like, because the UK, of course, recorded yes. their best result in 20-odd years or Gosh. something. Let's just have a quick blast of the UK entry, which was the silver medal winner from this year's Eurovision. You like the UK vote? Were we robbed? Is it the right thing that no, the UK was best of the rest? I, I don't think it was robbed, but I think it definitely deserved its second position. Finally, the UK is back to the left side of the screen, as people were <laughs> saying. Some people say, is this really happening? But you know what? I think the UK finally, you know, might take Eurovision a little bit more seriously. It's a great track, you know, very uplifting. Sam Ryder, he's is very charming, very friendly. Uh, he even looks at me, he looks kind of a blonde Jesus vibes, you know, kind of <laughs> with his hair. But I, I think people like that. They like that charisma. It was jet, jet, definitely not a mid-of-the-road song, which, which uh, you know, well done UK there as well. Uh, somebody said to me that he performs and he looks like a dog with its head stuck out the window of a fast-moving car. Just loving life. And people love that, right? Uh, Spain, third. Oh. Now, Spain, again, they could throw their hat into the ring for some extra uh, hosting. Should we hear a quick blast of the third place entry as well. It gives me goosebumps. Uh, now, Faye, I remember because we checked in over the weekend and you it was interesting to me. You said you could literally see them 
changing, tweaking, amending the choreography to that track. And it just goes to show this thing. They don't just throw it together. And similarly, they don't put it all together months, weeks in advance. The performances are yes. evolving things, right? Even the outfits. I mean, lots of things changed with, with the performance for slow-mo. And Tom, we, we talk a lot about the UK, how they don't take Eurovision seriously, blah, blah, blah. But Spain is also one of the big five countries and they've done not very well at Eurovision. In fact, worse than the UK, if you look that at averages. really going great yeah. guns. So well done for Spain as well to mm-hmm. be at number three. And I think the Spanish fans, they were everywhere in Turin. I think Chanel, uh, the singer of slow-mo, I mean, she had a lot of fans. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. For more music now, here is my weekly global countdown. This time, I look at the Lebanese pop charts. Regular listeners to this spot will be aware that there's like a, a kind of sub-genre of music I think of as deafening airport taxi music. And Lebanon in particular is a country I have visited many times, and I associate it very closely with what I think of as deafening airport taxi music. And I do wish to insert the rider at this point for the benefit of our Lebanese listeners that I adore Lebanon. It's one of my absolutely <laughs> favorite places to visit, but the deafening airport taxi music is a thing. Let's see if, if, if it's still the same here on, on the charts. I mean, shall we start at number five? As yeah, I that sa- seems the logical place. Exactly. Uh, as I said, there's a lot of Egyptian artists, and this one... He is really probably the biggest artist in Egypt at the moment. He's a trap artist, but he mixes trap music with shabi, which is the traditional Egyptian music. Let's have a listen with number five, Wags with El Bakht. <laughs> Yeah, if that was about a hundred decibels louder and with a lot more treble, it would take me right back exactly. uh, to being in the passenger seat of a Beirut taxi cab. But what is nice, I mean, it's not just your classic trap music. I love, I can feel the traditional Egyptian elements to this track as well. And well done to him. He's quite a very young artist. He's on the cover, I believe, of GQ Middle East all the time as well. Well, uh, well, good so, for him. Good for him as well, indeed. So uh, at number four. Number four, we changed the vibe. It's a little bit more of a ballad. And another Egyptian artist, I have to say. He's from Cairo, and not Alexandria like Wags. They, they're, uh, real, they're really cleaning up in Lebanon. Is this some sort of pyramid scheme, etc.? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, let's have a listen, and I'll translate some of the very romantic lyrics. Please do. It's Ahmed Saad with Aleki Ayorun. <laughs> He sounds deeply unhappy about something, Fernando, which weirdly is the effect listening to it is having on me. (laughs) But he sounds unhappy, but look at the lyrics, at least this one that I said. Your heart is pure, with you I live in peace of mind, with a smile make my day beautiful. (sighs) Ah. 
romantic. I, I mean, is it romantic though, or I mean, this, this maybe he's longing for that it, type it, of love? It sounds, it sounds more like you're yearning or longing or that kind of period of beginning to understand that no, mate, she's not coming back, and frankly, who can blame her? At number three, <laughs> number three, and I promise, listeners, don't worry, we are doing top five in Lebanon. This is the last Egyptian artist of the top five. Okay, okay. this is my promise to you, and he is actually the son of a very, very important uh, Egyptian actor who died a few years ago, Mahmoud Abdel Aziz. He's also an actor and a singer. Uh, this is Karim Mahmoud Abel Aziz featuring Mohammed Osama with El Ghazala. Let's have a listen. <laughs> I do not mind that at all, and though I will concede that my expertise in the popular song forms of North Africa is limited, that does have something of an Algerian rye vibe to it, I, I love, would have said. And there are a lot of remixes of this track. This is the non-remixed one, but some people are dancing uh, there in the clubs in Lebanon and, and Cairo as well. And this is the soundtrack of a film that he's in, which is about a family traveling together in a van, because apparently the kid got a competition for the smartest kid in the country, and they have to travel for two days in a van. It's kind of a comedy okay. uh, vibe. Yeah, I, I, I didn't actually hate that, which is which is more of a result than these top fives usually return, and we've still got two to go. Absolutely. I wonder if you're going to like number two. It's a Lebanese artist, finally. Okay. Uh, again, another balladeer here. This is Vadi El Sheikh with Zanan Al Arab. <laughs> Is, is that chorus Arabic for wave your hands in the air like you just don't care? <laughs> it's a little bit more dramatic, this song. I, okay. I, I, I kind of like that vibe. And, and Andrew, I think you would like to know that he's also a little bit of an entrepreneur. But this happens quite often here on the Global Countdown. You can go and, you know, his name's, let's remember, Vadi El Sheikh. You can buy a lot of sweaters. So he does have sweaters. A, sweaters, fashion clothing, hoodies as well. He has a range of sweaters <laughs> and hoodies, does he? Yes. I mean, are, are you able to describe them? Is there anything special about them as sweaters or hoodies? They are quite uh, aimed at a younger generation, I would say. You know, it's not really the classic patterns. Are you, are you saying I couldn't? You saying I couldn't pull them off, Fernando? I mean, are you saying <laughs> I, I have outgrown this man's sweaters and hoodies? I have a feeling you did. I mean, no offense here, but um, I'm going to wear one next week. <laughs> exactly. I'll show you all um is there any where do you buy his sweaters and hoodies i'm genuinely quite intrigued honestly just go to his instagram there's a link i will repeat his name vadi el sheikh okay instagram i have heard of that but at number one in lebanon we have i think this is a fantastic song and in fact one of the artists in this track we play here um in on monaco 24 actually but this is by elisa elisa she's does uh, she have a range of sweaters and hoodies she doesn't but she's quite glamorous she should okay. she should okay. have her own fashion line actually uh, but she's one of the biggest names in the Arab world and a very interesting character as well. She's very outspoken for women's rights in the Middle East. And, you know, she had a very long career yet. I mean, she, she's approaching 50 now. Her name is Elisa and she's singing with Saad Lenjerad, a Moroccan pop star. This is Min Avel de Kika.
that is number one in Lebanon this week. Fernando, just finally, do you think the fact of that being number one in Lebanon tells us anything about Lebanon's current national mood? Well, I wonder. I mean, I don't want to get into trouble here, but are they in a romantic mood? Because it's a very beautiful palette. <laughs> I have a feeling they're not. So perhaps they want some escapism in the charts. Perhaps that's what I can tell you. If you are in Lebanon and would like to tell us whether or not you are in a romantic mood, please let Fernando know directly. And now to Monaco on design. Berlin's vast U-Bahn celebrates its 120th anniversary this year. The rail network, which runs above and below ground, was an important piece of public infrastructure when it was introduced in an increasingly crowded German city in the early 20th century. Writer and historian Jess Simon has long been traversing the city for his project U-Bahn Berlin documenting and celebrating the network's unexpected and quirky design details. His analysis provides an insight into Berlin's history and an understanding of the design elements from a range of different styles, including Art Nouveau, Modernism and Pop Art. We caught up with Simon to find out what he's learned riding the Oban. The project was a sort of natural evolution of two other projects that I was working on. Berlin typography was really designed to look at the amount of text that appears in the city that sort of maybe passes us by that we don't realize is there. Signs that looked at inscriptions on buildings. And one of the things that it, that it looked at and one of the things that really got a lot of positive response were the signs on, on the underground stations. I think what makes them interesting is that whereas in somewhere like London or Paris, you have a very uniform quality to them. And, you know, you find the same signs in every station. In Berlin, there is a corporate identity or a an identity that governs the U-Bahn network. And yet, there is so much variation within that. There are so many signs from different eras, different periods, of course, from the, the age in which Berlin was two cities, East Berlin and West Berlin. So there's a lot of variation in the typography, certainly, of the U-Bahn network. Wittenbergplatz, Übergang zu U2 und U3. Achtung! There was another project that I was working on, which was called Berlin Texture, about sort of small architectural or design details. It was patterns and colors and textures. So it was a lot of photographs of walls and tile patterns that I think a lot of people would walk by every day and they would sort of make a subconscious impression on them, but they might not necessarily notice. What I was doing with these is I was sort of lifting them out of their urban context and placing them right in front of you, saying, look at this, this is beautiful. This is the world that you live in, that you walk through every day, and, and it's beautiful. There are a lot of interesting textures on, on the U-Bahn. There's a lot of interesting architectural details, metal and tile and stone 
And so these two different projects kind of eventually dovetailed into one. I thought, well, I've been taking all of these photographs of textures and tiles and patterns, and I've been taking all of these photographs of signs and typefaces. What would happen if I went on a tour through the entire underground network and just really highlighted the incredible, the extraordinary amount of, of diversity that, that's there. What has impressed me most of all is that each line has its own identity and its own sort of series of quirks. Many of the lines changed shape over the history of their creations. So one station that used to be on the U1 maybe is now on the, the U2 or something similar. But you can see that there are these different repeating patterns. And obviously you can see when in the individual lines were built and the sort of similarities that exist between these stations. The U2, for instance, there are a lot of these wonderful structural columns. They're, they're made out of steel, but they've got these wonderful sort of faux ionic capitals on top. They're made of metal and not stone, but they're this wonderful example of how the builders of the time sort of imagined that these were palaces of transport, and there are these little neoclassical details that show up in it. I think Alfred Grenander was very much the father of the Uban network. <laughs> he was a Swedish architect and he designed really many of the iconic stations from the first wave of, of the network. And his stations are extremely diverse. He did above ground stations, he did underground stations, and there's very much a palatial quality to them. He was celebrating the idea of, of public transportation by using influences from the neoclassical movement. But also he was very modern for his time. I think there are a lot of really wonderful architectural details that he put into his stations that embody an early 20th century optimism. I think the opposite end of, of that, there are the stations built in the 70s, which I think represent the highest plateau of achievement that Berlin Underground Network reached. The level of invention in these stations is extraordinary. As you move from one station to another, they get more and more outrageous in their designs. If you go from Fairberliner Platz to Constanze Strasse, which has this wonderful 70s brown and orange pattern and this really wonderful minimal typography, you get to Jungfernheide, so a few stations onwards, and you have these explosions of tile that are just different colors and, and these weird patterns. As you go, the sort of journey gets more and more psychedelic until finally you reach Paulsternstrasse. It's so colorful and it's, it has these pastoral scenes of these giant flowers and sunbursts and it's really quite amazing. The stations represent the sort of architectural trends of their day. And something that, that I've noticed is that 
right now there's a, a really a backlash against some of these 70s stations. So the station that I looked at, Bismarckstrasse, on the account, there was a wonderful, very futuristic, very minimal design. And they've torn all that out, and they're now replacing it with these really classical tiles that, that sort of look like they should have come from the 20s or 30s. There was this period in Berlin where, obviously, the period of division, where there were two cities. The, the city was divided into East Berlin and West Berlin, and they were autonomous cities, completely cut off from one another. But they evolved in parallel, and they evolved in very much according to their own design. But they produced some, I would say, highly successful examples of architecture, urban design, including many of the U-Bahn stations. And now there seems to be a move in the sort of age of reunification towards erasing the good things that emerged from the era of division. So we're getting a lot of the really beautiful stations from the 70s, Bismarckstrasse being one example, Schlossstrasse in uh, Steglitz being another one, where they're stripping them down, they're taking out everything that suggests that this period of division was actually in some way successful, that it produced good things, and they're sort of making them modern and a bit bland, if you ask me. And it seems a real shame. You are with The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. And now we have a meat-free recipe by the executive chef of London's Bubala restaurant, Helen Graham. Hello, my name is Helen. I am the executive chef of Bubala. We are a 36-seater restaurant in Spitalfields, serving Middle Eastern vegetarian slash vegan food. And we opened in September 2019. We are going to be opening our second site in Soho on Poland Street in June this year, which is super, super exciting. Expect some of the same, but also a lot different. I am going to be giving you the recipe for our signature dish, which is our hummus with burnt butter. We've been serving it since we started as a pop-up years ago and it's never left the menu since it's really delicious it's quite indulgent with the burnt butter so i think this is something that you really whip out for a dinner party so in order to do the recipe you'll need to soak 250 grams of chickpeas overnight and then you need to drain them cover them with cold water add half a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda and boil until they are very soft. Strain out the liquid and reserve the liquid. Chill both. Then into a blender, you'll need to put the chickpeas, 250 grams of the cooking liquid, 100 grams of tahini, 50 grams of fresh lemon juice, a teaspoon of table salt, and a big pinch of cumin, and blend until that's completely smooth. And then chill that until you're ready to serve. For the burnt butter, You'll need to put 125 grams of unsalted butter in a pan and put this on a medium-high heat. 
and you'll need to cook this until it starts to bubble and it will start to smell quite nutty maybe after 10-15 minutes. Make sure you whisk this every so often. When it's turned a kind of golden colour, you want to take this off the heat, strain and discard out the butter solids and then mix into this butter half a teaspoon of smoked paprika and a pinch of table salt. When you're ready to serve, you want to pour this butter over your hummus. Make sure you serve it when the butter's hot so it stays nice and liquidy. And then scoop it up with some pita bread, some flatbreads. We get our breads from Ararat Bakery on Ridley Road in Dalston and they are really delicious. So there you go. Hope you enjoy it. with the curator. Time now to talk about travel trends with Divya Tani. She is the global editorial director of Condé Nast Traveler. She also told me about her new issue, Hot List. I think there's a wave of optimism, really. Everyone is so excited to be back and to be able to make all of these trips that they've been planning in their heads and mentally, you know, sort of thinking about and obsessing about for so long. I think the pandemic really, really took a toll on people in that sense where they absolutely realized, I think, the value of travel in their lives. And so I think now they're really trying to make up for lost time and uh, they're thinking really hard about where they want to go. And it's 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 amazing. It's fantastic. It's so good to be back. And, you know, everywhere I've been so far, people are so happy just to be back out. And there's a real feeling of of not just optimism, but I think also just a lot of gratitude to be able to be back and do all the things that they love and meet all the people that they haven't been able to see. So it's a great feeling. Well, and I think your job and your magazine as well, it's almost uh, as a public service for this industry that, as you said, suffered quite a lot as well during the COVID era. Uh, so tell us about the hot list, because I think the hot list, again, it is a, w a way of showing new hotels, new restaurants, new destinations, everything that is new and exciting, right? And this year has kind of a special touch because there's been quite a lot of collaboration between the international editions, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's special, Fernando, you're so right. It's special, I, I would guess, for many reasons, but two of them that I think are, are so important. The first is that, Like you said, the industry, the travel industry, the hospitality industry suffered so much in these past two years. Really, when travel came to, you know, we say a pause, but in many parts of the world, it came to a complete stop. And the fact that you have now all of these amazing hotels popping up all over the world, that despite everything that has happened and how horrible things were for so many people, that people didn't give up on their dreams. They continued building these amazing places. They can they continue to really pursue their passions and really think about, you know, think beyond the present time and think about what they were hoping to create and the experiences they were hoping other people would have. And it's a really beautiful feeling to see it all come together and to see all of these real labors of love and passion and energy, because building a hotel is not an easy thing to do. And it takes years. And to see that people have really fought through all of that difficult, dark time and come out now and they're open and they're running, It's amazing. It really is a fantastic feeling. So it's special for that. And like you said, it's special also because it's the first time for us that all of the editors of Traveler around the world, we have seven editions, as you know, spread out across the world from China, India, the Middle East to Europe 
to the UK, to the US. We really are spread out across the globe. And all of our editors from everywhere came together and did the scouting and the selection and the naming of all of these all of these winners on the hot list. And so it really was a complete collaboration across many time zones and several weeks. And it was really lovely to see because, you know, you're working with all of these teams everywhere and everyone is so passionate about what is happening in their part of the world. And they have so much context and really such great insight and anecdotes around the building of these hotels because they're so close to them on the ground there that it really brought a tremendous amount amount of just richness and depth, I think, to this list. So in addition to the hotels, we actually have widened the lens. So we have not just a hot list of of hotels, but also restaurants, cruises, you know, transportation, just what's happening on the cultural scene, you know, some great museums. And so the list is really wider in that sense. and, And that makes it even more exciting than the normal. And I'm, I'm glad that this has been expanded as well, because, of course, hotels are super important. But, for example, in the new issue, I was reading uh, the UK edition for Hot List as well. There's this trend of Amapiano music in South Africa, which I'm a little mm-hmm. bit obsessed about it. And th- to be honest, that makes me want to travel to South Africa, you know, to experience kind of this exciting uh, music genre in a way. So I think that was a good way to expand that Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And you're so right. You know, travel is is not just about where you go you know travel is about music and art and food and culture and dance and and it's wellness and and the environment and wildlife and so many different things are all under this wide umbrella that we call travel so it really does depend on what you're passionate about and really that should be the driving force for you wherever you want to go in the world there is something exciting happening in the space that you're interested in so there's so many different ways of of getting into travel and choosing where you want to go so i understand why people look at as traveler because it is very confusing out there there's a lot of different choices And finally on the show, today's tall stories come to us from the Catalan capital of Barcelona, where we visit an historic building that has been given a fresh start, as well as a fresh perspective on one of its long-hidden facades. To explore what's going on beyond the street side, here is Monaco's David Stevens. For many who visit or pass by a well-regarded piece of city architecture, a single facade is all that's available to admire. The other three walls are often less adorned, packed tightly against neighbouring structures, or locked away in quiet courtyards or alleyways. Barcelona's La Carboneria, however, is a structure graced with four facades, owing to the fact that its construction occurred while the city streets were still being drawn up. La Carboneria, originally designed as a housing estate, is the oldest building standing from Cerdà's groundbreaking Eixample plan from the mid-1800s. It was intended to sit between one of Cerdà's famous four-way junctions and a symbolic avenue that the town hall planned to cut diagonally across the map in line with the city's original defensive walls. Despite the fact that the street plan hadn't been finalised, construction of La Carboneria went ahead, and because of its position as an urban island of sorts, all of its faces needed to be presentable. Although the building was hardly decorative, owing to the fact it was constructed around the time of economic depression and for humble purposes, it was no less beautiful. But, as tensions between Cerdà and the town hall grew, the avenue idea was scrapped, and eventually the building was built into the corner of the block, hiding most of it away from the public. 
The next important chapter for La Carbonaria came in the 2000s when squatters began to occupy the building. The impromptu residents contributed enormous artistic works to the facades, resulting in the building becoming one of the most photographed in Barcelona. Not an easy task, considering it was competing with Gaudí's architectural masterpieces dotted across the Catalan capital. In 2014, the squatters were evicted from the space, but their occupation and the previous owner's attempts at eviction had left the building in disrepair and without a stairwell. La Carboneria was set for demolition and seemed soon to be nothing more than a memory. The last chapter in this story, for now at least, brings us to today, where the building's refurbishment is almost complete. In 2015, the building was recategorized as being of historic and artistic interest, and the owners needed an architect to complete its rehabilitation. I'm Angel Borrego, and I'm an architect from Madrid. I studied architecture in Madrid and did a master's at Princeton, and I have an office of architecture in Madrid. Borrego was chosen for the project, and his design reverted the one public-facing facade to resemble the 19th century original. But it's the courtyard hidden behind the building where the magic of the space can be seen. As a pigeon darted between the metal frames above, Angel described how the idea to reorient the space took shape. We try to listen a lot to the stories that we find and try to find in those things that you can work with. We try to find places where the most useful project can come from. And since we didn't have a stairwell, we thought about taking the stairwell outside of the building and put it into the corner of the two party walls and from there access the new building. This repositioned staircase forces visitors to approach the rear facade across walkways from a distance and they're given a moment to regard the long-hidden facade-to-be that was never granted the grand avenue it was originally prepared for. In a very practical and important way, the squatting history of the building, the recent, very recent squatting history, and then the study that was done to support its classification as a historical element, and the work that the owner did of tearing the stair down gave us the clue and the stepping stone in order to put the stair outside of the building and have this view of the battleground facade. Upon opening, La Carboneria will again fulfil some of its original purposes, not just as a housing project, but also as a building to be admired from every side, especially that which has remained hidden for so many years. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week for more interviews here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.